well, that's life Or it was It's nothing to me Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. The way presidential candidate Joe Biden told it, his administration was going to do what the previous Trump presidency refused to do. And that is to stand up to Saudi Arabia and the assassination of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Candidate Biden even went so far as calling Saudi Arabia, a longtime ally and loyal customer of the U.S. military weapons industry, a pariah state with no redeeming value. So you knew if candidate Biden became a President Biden, unlike President Trump, he was going to come down on the side of democratic values and the Saudis would be shaking in their boots. Apparently, there was no need for Saudi boot shaking or any concern whatsoever for any change in U.S. policy toward the kingdom because all President Biden would do is what is known as recalibrating, which means maybe a Subtle tweak to a relationship, but no threat to its foundations. And the essence of that U.S.-Saudi relationship was not challenged by now President Biden's condemnation of the assassination while giving Mohammed bin Salman, who is believed to be the person who ordered the killing, giving him a pass. MBS's sanctioned henchmen, unless they fall out of favor with the crown prince himself, the assassins will literally get away with murder, our guest today says. The unchangeable foreign policy is based on an understanding of the 20th century that is a misunderstanding of the 1900s. And in that misunderstanding, people like Biden believe our democratic values actually line up with our interests overseas, which they clearly do not. With the pandemic, it's now become obvious to many that those democratic values no longer live up, line up at home either with our broken social contract and rising inequality, not only in wages, but in care. No, we're not all in this together. And until we recognize we are not pretending we are not, things are going to get worse. Returning to This Is Hell today is author and historian Andrew Basevich, who wrote the article on shredding an obsolete past. Biden defers to the blob, which appears at TomDispatch.com, where Andrew regularly posts. Andrew is Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at the Boston University Frederick S. Pardee School of Global Studies, a retired Army Colonel and graduate of West Point. Andrew is also president of the Quincy Institute for Reasonable Statecraft. Andrew first appeared on This Is Hell back in February 2006, about 15 years and one month ago, to talk about his then-just-published book, The New American Militarism, How Americans Are Seduced by War, which is a must-read despite being 15 years old. Last time Andrew was on back in July 2016, we discussed his most recent book, The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory. And Andrew has a new book coming out in June titled After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transformed. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Basevich. Also on today's show, we got email and it's all about authoritarianism and not just any authoritarianism, but police actions against students. 
actions that are supported by the U.S. Embassy overseas and university presidents back here in the States. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, and now producing on Tuesdays, so mark it down in your calendars. Our new Tuesday producer is Alex Jerry. We haven't spoken since Friday's Patreon podcast. What have you been up to, Alex? Any luck on the vaccine? Uh, speaking of luck, I prized the same rabbit's foot out of my dog's mouth twice. Really? Yeah. Uh, threw, it, threw it away from her, her mouth on a walk last night. Come back this morning, same rabbit foot, same disgusting situation, <laughs> pulling it out of my... So uh, I don't know who's the lucky one in this situation. <laughs> That's very nice. That's why I carry a Buckeye on me. I tell you, carrying a Buckeye on you, it gives you luck. <sighs> At this moment, right now, there are men in my home, complete strangers, completely unattended, in my house, with access to all my stuff. And more importantly, my girlfriend's much nicer and more valuable and expensive stuff. And they're staining our deck and back stairs, because that's what we're paying them to do, the regular maintenance you need to do to preserve a wooden deck and back stairs. And I bet our cats are freaking out, so I just kind of feel weird that there's some dudes in my house right now making noises that unknowingly are very loud noises and are terrorizing our cats and they can you know, these guys can do basically whatever they want it's even even more weird because after today's show when i'm doing research and writing for tomorrow's show there will be workers in my home all day long so if my questions suck during tomorrow's interview with our guest let's blame it on the guys staining my back deck more importantly alex than my classist concerns about workers stealing my stuff alex What's this week's question from uh, Workers probably have audience. nicer stuff than you do. I know they do, actually. Uh, this week's question from Hell is, what are you not paranoid enough about? What are you not paranoid <laughs> enough about? <laughs> Can I say the workers? <laughs> These guys are totally fine. I really hate it when people uh, are concerned about, uh, they hire people to clean their homes, and they're like, they're going to steal something. They're going to steal something. They never steal anything. It's just such a weird American indoctrination that we have that you're just so protective of your stupid stuff. Again, this week's question from is, what are you not paranoid enough about? What are you not paranoid enough about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell will win your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And remember, without your support, we got nothing because we are completely listener-supported. This is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. When we are announcing this week's winner, Alex will have some more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. You can email us your thoughts, criticism, and suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. You can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet to us at thisishellradio, or you can just put something in the mail and send it to us at thisishell2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60645. We got an email from George who writes, I think this would be a good story for you to cover on This Is Hell. Since the fall of the left-wing government, Greece has not been getting enough attention. The things in this article are pretty shocking. Thanks and keep up the good work. George then includes a link to a story at Roar magazine by Giulio Derrico and Giovanni Marenda titled Resisting Greece's Rapid Descent into Authoritarianism, the heavily militarized response to the pandemic and endemic police violence has exacerbated old conflicts within Greek society and many have had enough. And here's a little taste of the shocking actions of the Greek government. The betrayed promises of the two governments led by leftist Alexis Tsipras 
Elected for the first time in 2015, capitalizing on the anti-austerity struggles of the previous years, paved the way for a new restoration and Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsakis, which is quickly bringing the country towards an illiberal democracy. In the last few months, the ghost of the junta has often been invoked. This became clear in February last month when the parliament passed a university reform bill which established the University Institutions Protection Team a special police force presiding over university campuses 24-7. This is the last step in the tightening of spaces for freedom, a long-time request of the U.S. Embassy in Athens, as shown by leaked cables dating back to 2006. The result is a military occupation of universities, evidently considered a den of dangerous opposition. What can be said, what can be learned, and when and how to protest are now decided by people in uniforms. Through their, these actions, the Prime Minister's promise is stability, but the authors point out Greek society is already divided, and the so-called unity the Prime Minister pursues is the stability of the oppression of the many in defense of the privilege of the few. Less than two years after his election, hailed by global liberal institutions as the victory of the moderates against populism, Greece is quickly descending into authoritarianism. Thank you, George. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the reminder that the U.S. Embassy has been asking the Greek government to act in an authoritarian way to crack down on students and dissent within Greece since 2006. The democratic values of the United States at work again, as Andrew Basevich will describe in just a couple minutes. We also got another email about police on campuses. And remember that crazy name for the University Institutions Protection Team, which is what the special police force is being called in Greece. So we got an email during the week I took off because of the passing of my brother. I wasn't here. And I cannot thank all of you enough for the incredibly heartfelt condolences you sent. Each and every one was very much appreciated. Andrew writes, hey, Chuck, you might remember that I wrote to you back in the fall when Northwestern University students organized protests for police abolition for over 30 days straight. Well, as of Saturday night, they're back. That would be Saturday night, March 13th, a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago almost. A group of about 150 students gathered and marched to the House of President Morton Shapiro, where 10 minutes later, their assembly was declared unlawful. When 75 riot cops marched towards the group, banging their batons against their shields, nobody ran to try to save themselves. Instead, everyone linked arms and moved as a block for half an hour until they reached a place where people could safely disperse. These protests have blossomed into an insurrectionary movement that one keeps everyone safe in the streets and two seems to scare the hell out of the cops given the force with which they feel they need to respond naturally that's not something the media likes to report on as in the fall the only place to find accurate information is from the student newspaper the daily northwestern and through the twitter account cops out of nu at cops out of nu feel free to share on the show Thanks, Andrew. The Daily Northwestern article from March 15th that Andrew links to is headlined, NUCNC met with heavy NIPAS presence in first in-person action since November 2000. Hey, it's a student newspaper. Give it a break on the headlines. But it's by Bina Shrofsky and Maya Spado. The lead is, in its first in-person action since last November, Northwestern University community, not cops, assembled Saturday to push for the abolition of university police and to criticize university leadership. The group of about 150 students was met with over 70 fully armed riot police from the Northern Illinois Police Alarm Systems Mobile Field Force 
which sounds a little bit too much like University Institutions Protection Team. <sighs> Alex, next week, what do you think of having NU Community Not Cops on the show and maybe even discussing the earlier story about uh, more authoritarianism in Greece? Uh, got a request out to them, Greek fellers. Pro- yeah. pro- not, not referring to them as them Greek fellers <laughs> in uh, the email, but I have a request out. All right, and let's try to do something with maybe NU Community Not Cops on the show, maybe for a Thursday when we'll have like 20 or 25 minutes with them. Again, send us your comments on the show, guest or topic suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. DM them to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio or just send us stuff in an actual on the actual mail. This is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60654. No, 5960659. Live from the United States, where the law can often be the crime. This is hell coming up. It's time we ditch the 20th century narrative that U.S. interests overseas are aligned with democratic values. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. What are you not paranoid enough about? And uh, Alex will be telling us what's happening on tomorrow's show. And we'll also have an update from Brian Muir on what is taking place in Brazil. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell presidential candidates at times campaign on promises to shake up U.S. foreign policy. President Biden campaigned on how his foreign policy would not be Trump's foreign policy. Biden would be a return to normal. Here to help us examine and consider what that normal is and why it is seen as normal, returning to This Is Hell. Author and historian Andrew Basevich wrote the article on shedding an obsolete past. Biden defers to the blob, which appears at TomDispatch.com, where Andrew writes regularly. Andrew, welcome back to This Is Hell. Oh, thanks very much for having me. The last time, well, first of all, the first time you were on, unbelievably, was February 2006, nearly a little bit over 15 years ago today, to talk about your book. I think you're making that up. I can't believe it. (laughs) I know, especially for you being 18 years old. It's the weirdest part that we had this conversation with you when you were three. Uh, So, uh, and that book was New American Militarism. And I just want to tell everybody, it's a really important book, The New American Militarism, How Americans Are Seduced by War. And even though it's 15 years old, it's still very timely. And Andrew has a new uh, book coming out in June. It's going to be called After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transformed. You start your article at Tom Dispatch saying, you write the blob is back beneath a veneer of gender and racial diversity. The Biden national security team consists of seasoned operatives who earned their spurs in Washington long before Donald Trump showed up to spoil the party. So if you're looking for fresh faces at the departments of state or defense, the National Security Council, or the various intelligence agencies, you will have to pretty search pretty hard. Ditto if you're looking for fresh insights. In Washington, members of the foreign policy establishment recite stale bromides, even as they divert attention from a dead past to which they remain devoted. So what is that dead past? And more importantly, why are they so devoted to it? Why is it so attractive to them? I think the dead past centers on World War II. And they're attracted to it because the way we have chosen to remember World War II and the way World War II continues to have a dominant place in our collective consciousness validates the American project in the world, imparts to it a a moral purpose that deflects any need to 
to think, to have second thoughts. You know, the language that derives from World War II, you know, terms like isolationism, appeasement, the, the moments, Munich, Pearl Harbor, the individuals, above all, Winston Churchill, as the British leader when Britain stood alone against Nazi Germany. All of these get recycled over and over and over again in order to justify a pattern of American behavior, uh, which members of the blob would like to see continue indefinitely. So do we have an inaccurate understanding of the history of World War II? And how much do you think that we were even well, uh, even indoctrinated into that belief through our education system? Well, we have a very convenient and selective memory of World War II. And, uh, you know, in, in, indoctrinate, that's a, that's a powerful word, uh, but I think it's probably appropriate. I mean, what are we getting to here? Well, we're getting to things like the belief that World War II was won by an Anglo-American partnership forged by Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt that was all about preserving freedom and democracy. That, that statement ought to come with a whole bunch of asterisks. One of the asterisks needs, needs to reference the Soviet Union which of course did not represent freedom and democracy by any stretch of the imagination, but which did one heck of a lot more to bring about the defeat of Nazi Germany than did the military forces of Great Britain and the United States. And I'm not suggesting that, that our side, the West, didn't make a substantial contribution. It did, but that contribution paled in comparison to the fighting and dying that the, that the Soviets did. You know, furthermore, you know, we, we, we want to enshrine the rhetoric of, of Churchill to a lesser extent, but, but uh, also Franklin Roosevelt, portraying that war is about freedom and democracy. Well, it kind of was and it kind of wasn't. I mean, it was a war for empire, <laughs> the, the Brits, the, the Brits entered that war as the preeminent imperial power in the world. And as Churchill said quite explicitly, he had no intention of seeing the British Empire go away. He aimed to preserve it in perpetuity. Didn't happen, but that was his intention. And also the, the emphasis made in, in, in framing World War II as the war against Nazi Germany tends then to overshadow the war in the Pacific, us against the Japanese. I'm not for a second going to you know, defend Japanese uh, conduct, either before the war or during the war. But the fact of the matter is that the war against Japan was a war about empire. I mean, the issue, the real issue was which country, ours or theirs? was going to be the dominant power in the Pacific. We won. We became the dominant power. 
we remain the dominant power. And of course, one of the interesting things about the year 2021 is that it looks like the Chinese may be on the verge of challenging our preeminence. And of course, that's causing all kinds of a big flap uh, in the policy community in, uh, in Washington. So how do we view U.S. foreign policy today differently when we see World War II not as a war against fascism, not as a war for democracy, but as a war for empire? How does that affect our view today of U.S. foreign policy? Well, I think it ought to uh, cause us to be skeptical about the claims of American exceptionalism. I mean, World War II seemed to affirm American exceptionalism. That is to say, this conviction that we are history's chosen people called upon to, uh, you know, to liberate, uh, to, to, to bring about the universal embrace of our, of, our, of our values. World War II, the way we remember, the way we choose to remember it, uh, seems to, to prove that that undertaking is a valid one. It's a doable one. Uh, I, I know I've long since come to believe that American exceptionalism is a, a very pernicious uh, notion that causes us to misunderstand ourselves and causes us to do stupid things uh, in the world. I know that book you cited came out in 2005, New American Militarism, meaning it came out two years. I, I wrote the last part of the book right at the time of the beginning of the, uh, of the Iraq War of 2003, a war that I am absolutely persuaded was uh, illegal, immoral, and certainly was wrongheaded in terms of, of uh, the cost that we have paid as a nation and the limited benefits that we have accrued. But what's interesting about that, one of the interesting things about that war is the way that George W. Bush justified it. You go back and look at his speeches uh, in, in 2002 and in 2003, and they are chock full of references to World War II. Not, not simply comparing Saddam Hussein to Adolf Hitler, which was absurd, but describing our purposes as, as liberation. Uh, you know, that we, we, we invade, we invade the Iraq in order to free the Iraqi people, in order to in, in, in endow them with, with, with democracy. And a lot of people believe that. I mean, there, there was some amount of op American opposition to the war, but not a heck of a lot. Uh, certainly, there are plenty of prestige media outlets that were happy to buy into this notion that we were going to overthrow Saddam Hussein and, and democracy and, and, and human rights would then take root in Iraq. And I think all of that, the, the fact that that was deemed plausible, uh, really reflects the, the, the chosen interpretation of World War II. 
You also point out that just two weeks into his presidency, Joe Biden visited the State Department to give American diplomats their marching orders. In his formal remarks, the president committed the, his administration to diplomacy rooted in America's most cherished democratic values, defending freedom, championing opportunity, upholding universal rights, respecting the rule of law, treating every person with dignity. Now, last week we spoke with journalist Max Zerngast, who is back living in Vienna after being arrested and jailed in Turkey for his writing that was critical of the Erdogan government. Following Erdogan's recent steps to dissolve the pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party and the recent arrests of tens of thousands of its members and prohibiting them from participating in politics in the future, Max pointed to an exclusive report by Reuters on March 18th that made public, due to pressure applied by U.S. President Joe Biden and German Chancellor Angela Merkel, the EU will not declare any further sanctions on Turkey in its upcoming summit. The report further states that Turkey's recent moves to recalibrate its foreign policy with its Western allies motivated Biden to press Brussels, while Merkel favored an approach that prioritizes EU investment in Turkey. So how would you define the cherished democratic values within which U.S. foreign policy is rooted, as Biden and other presidents have argued? Uh, I mean, we adhere to them when it's convenient for us to do so. Uh, I mean, in that sense, this, that's what that's what great powers do. You know, great great powers, uh, you know, talk about moral values. They talk about uh, international law. Uh, they talk about upholding what is right, uh, and that's not hypocrisy in the sense that it that it is always a lie. It is hypocrisy in the sense that uh, great powers do that when it suits them, when it suits their interests. And when it doesn't suit their interests, then they, you know, then they behave cynically. Uh, and what's odd, I think, not odd, but uh, disturbing, is that they continue to get away with this. So, you know, you cite, uh, and I wrote about, uh, Biden's first visit to the State Department when he re recited all of the familiar uh, cliches, uh, and he doesn't get called on it. Now, you scratch your head and you say, well, does, does Biden really believe that? Does he, does he really believe the words that he spoke? Uh, and I think probably at some level he does. You know, there's, there, I think the, the policymakers have a capacity to, to compartmentalize, you know, and it's one, when it's one half of their brain, they're able to uh, see themselves and the country as participating in some great enlightened undertaking that is consistent with American values. And then the other part of their brain, they can set aside those things and then they can uh, you know, cut deals, <clears throat> cut deals with MBS, cut deals with Erdogan cut deals with, you know, whoever it's convenient to, to cut a deal with. And, and, they, and they themselves, I think, don't necessarily acknowledge the contradiction or the inconsistency. Uh, you know, in that article, I, I quoted Dennis Ross, who's a longtime member of the blob, Middle East expert, you know, advised, I don't know how many presidents on US, US policy in the Middle East. And he was referring to the fact that uh, you, you, you referred to it in the run-up to this, our discussion five minutes ago, uh, how we're, we're, we're cutting MBS uh, slack. Uh, 
uh, we're, we're not going to hold him to account for the for the murder of that uh, Washington Post journalist. And Ross said, "Well, you know, this is threading the needle. You know, this is this is uh, you know finding a way to somehow satisfy your interests and satisfy your values. <laughs> it's nothing of the sort. <laughs> it's it's discarding your values <laughs> uh, and taking the short term view that somehow he you, you supposedly." Uh, protecting your interests. Uh, it happens all the time. And I'm not picking on Biden. This is just the way it works. Is the Biden policy then, is it U.S. exceptionalism employed as foreign policy? Because I cannot help but wonder what happens to foreign policy when it is based on cherished values that are rarely upheld and exceptionalism that is a myth. What happens when when U.S. foreign policy is not based on what the government says it is, but is based on just enforcing a myth. Well, I mean, you know, part of the problem here, I guess, is that uh, we, meaning, you know, the American people, not that I speak for the American people, but we we like those myths. You know, when, when, when circling back to World War II, we like to think about, the greatest generation that landed at Normandy and freed Europe so that democracy would prevail. We're comfortable sort of erasing the Soviets, the Red Army from the, uh, from the picture. We're comfortable, you know, not thinking about the actual purposes of the British Empire, which had nothing to do with, with, with democracy. So, you know, you began by making reference to, you know, are are we indoctrinated? And I said, yeah, I guess we're indoctrinated, but we're comfortable being indoctrinated. Uh, We don't want to think of ourselves as just the latest in a series of great powers, not particularly different from any of the other great powers that have paraded across history's stage. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's very, uh, it's very difficult for us to consider the possibility that our moment at the center of the stage may be coming to an end. Uh, that you know the so-called American century could be over. Uh, but Joe Biden's never going to acknowledge that. You know, Joe Biden's going to say that the American century is intended to go on forever. I think one of the reasons that, that, that we're, this, this you know, quote unquote rise of China is so troubling uh, for Americans, you know, so hard to, uh, to come to terms with is because if the rise of China is real, then the era of Amer- American primacy certainly is, is gone for good. And the, the, the challenge of sharing the planet with another great power like China, culturally so different from, from us, politically different from us, uh, it makes your head hurt to think about the adjustments that are going to be necessary if we're going to be able to you know, have a relationship with the Chinese that's based on mutual coexistence. So it's a lot easier to do what Biden did at the State Department, talk about, you know, how 
uh, we're going to, you know, our best days are still in front of us, you know, onward and upward. You write, let it be said that a preference for a lucre rather than principles succinctly describes traditional U.S.-Saudi relations going back several decades. This all kind of reminded me of the 2000 presidential debate where Jim Lehrer was the moderator and he, there's uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore and he, it's the foreign policy debate and he keeps asking him questions on foreign policy one after another after another and they continue to agree on foreign policy. Mm. And at one point, Jim Larry gets so just annoyed by the whole situation. He says, is there anywhere in foreign policy where the two of you disagree? How long has foreign policy been bipartisan? Well, I think, uh, I guess I would say be, uh, probably beginning on the 8th of December, 1941, because prior to Pearl Harbor, there had been a, a fundamental debate about America's role in the world. And the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor ended that debate. Now, one could argue that the debate resumed briefly after 1945. There were Republicans led by Senator Robert Taft of Ohio who were skeptical about whether or not the United States, skeptical about whether the American posture in World War II should somehow define the American posture after World War II. But that debate ended very quickly as the, as the Cold War heated up. Didn't leave anything to talk about. Fast forward to 1989, when the Cold War ended, ends, there is no debate. Uh, at, at that point, the insistence that the United States is the one and only leader of the world had become so deeply inculcated in the foreign policy establishment that the passing of the Cold War did not lead to anybody saying, hey, wait a second, maybe we, maybe we should do things differently now. Uh, so, so it goes back a long time. One of the reasons that members of the establishment found the, the presidency of Donald Trump so disturbing is that he rejected that bipartisan con consensus. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want anybody listening to think I'm sticking up for Trump, who was the worst president we ever had and was totally incompetent and totally unqualified. But he did make a, at least a pretense, it's hard to tell if he was really serious about it, make a pretense of, of challenging the foreign policy consensus in his attacks on so-called uh, endless wars, for example. And, and the establishment found that deeply disturbing. And I think one of the reasons the establishment, uh, you know, is more comfortable with, with Joe Biden as president is because he, he comes from them. You know, he, he is a longtime subscriber of the basic framework of American foreign policy and, and, and what it's based on. And what, what is it based on? Well, above all, it's based on having the preeminent military establishment on the planet and being willing to put that mil military establishment to work. Uh, and the point there, I think, is that there's Biden, and this gets, gets, get back, gets, gets back to the notion that the people he's hired 
there's little evidence that Biden or the people around him are willing to take seriously the proposition that, guess what? We might be entering into a new era in which the old lessons of World War II and the lessons of the Cold War are no longer applicable. They don't want to think about it. Maybe they're incapable of thinking about that. Is that just... Be, I don't mean to be ageist, but is that just because of their age? Because they have... That's the time from which they come? If somebody... Does this mean if we had somebody in their 40s or 50s as president that they wouldn't have this perspective? It's hard to say. Uh, I mean, to the extent that there are outliers... I think the outliers would mostly be in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, where there are at least some pretty young people. Uh, but you know, the, the, the old way of doing things is very convenient for, it's really convenient if you're a part of the military industrial complex. It's really convenient if you're a general or you're an admiral. It's really convenient if you sit on the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, there's not a lot of incentive to uh, to rethink, to ask first order questions. To me, one of the really interesting things about our post 9-11 experience, you know, we're launched on this global war on terrorism. Here we are 20 years later, and it's still sort of, we don't call it that anymore, but, but the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, Somalia and Libya, are all sort of still out there, even though we've long since given up uh, trying to win. We've spent something, we don't know how much money we've spent, but uh, estimates are like six, seven trillion dollars. We've killed a couple hundred thousand people, certainly sustained substantial casualties on our own part in terms of uh, Americans who've been killed and wounded, some of them badly wounded. And I find it fascinating that that none of that really gets talked about. You know, there's, there's no, it's not part of our politics. People get excited about a lot of things in politics, you know, related to race, you know, related to gender, related to the environment. I'm not, I have no problem with any of that. But, but the post-Cold War period, and particularly the post-9-11 period, has produced disaster for our country. And yet, doesn't find a place on our sort of, the, the, you know, the political agenda. In part, I think, because both parties, of course, own this. You know, it's, it's, people complain about the lack of bipartisanship. I think we're bi bipartisanship has existed in, in the great screw up of the post 9-11 period with regard to our national security policies. Both parties imp impl uh, implicated, presidents from both parties uh, implicated, most of the major media implicated, so nobody wants to talk about it. 
You also explained that the term chosen to describe the process of tweaking a relationship or preserving its essence is recalibrate, as uh, was mentioned in the Reuters article about how Turkey had recalibrated their relationship with the West. You add, in practical terms, recalibration means that the U.S. government is sanctioning a few dozen Saudi functionaries for their involvement in the Khashoggi assassination while giving Mohammed bin Salman himself a pass, MBS's sanctioned henchmen, unless they fall out of favor with the crown prince himself, the assassins assassins will literally get away with murder. So, Andrew, why is foreign policy only allowed to, at the very most, recalibrate and never change? What keeps it from doing more than recalibrating, or is it, or is it something not keeping it from doing that? There's just no willingness to do. Well, that. no, but there's the absence of debate. So, our relationship with Saudi Arabia dates from World War II. That's when Franklin Roosevelt informally uh, promised that the United States would ensure the security and survival of the Saudi royal family in return for privileged access to Saudi oil. That's where it began. In 1980, Jimmy Carter is president Carter promulgates the Carter Doctrine, which says that the Persian Gulf is a vital U.S. national security interest and we'll fight, we'll fight to make sure nobody controls it except us. That leads to a whole passel of armed interventions that, from my perspective, don't do any good and cost us a lot. And yet, in 2021, There are very few people, virtually nobody in a position of influence, who are willing to ask whether or not the U.S.-Saudi relationship actually deserves to be maintained. I mean, my, my opinion, which carries zero weight, is that we should, we should get out of this relationship. I don't understand why it is incumbent upon the United States in effect, to support Saudi Arabia in its contest with Iran to see which of those two countries is going to be dominant in the Persian Gulf. We don't need Persian Gulf oil. Neither of those two countries, in any way whatsoever, reflects the values that we profess to believe in. So why, why do we have to take sides? I don't get it. I mean, I do get it in the sense that I understand the arguments behind it, part, part of which relate to the U.S. relationship with Israel. But simply from the point of view of, of our interests and our values, the U.S.-Saudi relationship actually makes no sense whatsoever. But it's kind of an off-limits uh, question. Right. And you point out that inside the Beltway, lobbyists for U.S. arms merchants are undoubtedly touching base with members of Congress whose constituency benefit from exporting weapons to Saudi Arabia because they were concerned maybe that Biden was going to place some sanctions on them or something, but nothing ever happened. Is U.S. foreign policy then... Uh, Andrew, is it is it our fault for being complicit in the profit making of U.S. foreign policy through things like the sales of U.S. made weapons? How dependent? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, there's lots of sources of corruption in politics, but I'm hard pressed to identify anything 
that makes a greater corruption, a greater contribution to corruption in our politics than the military industrial complex. You know, the, the influence that these arms manufacturers have on the Congress uh, is extraordinary. And, you know, we get, we get upset, we, we ought to get upset about the you know, shenanigans of the Republican Party uh, trying to, you know, limit the ability of, of, of individuals to vote. I mean, it's, it's utterly reprehensible. But quite frankly, I think, I think that the influence of arms manufacturers in the Congress is orders of magnitude more reprehensible. But that's kind of considered the way, you know, it's business as usual. It's just the way it works. Now, the, you know, the, even, even the military, you know, I used to be in the army long ago, and uh, the, the army has more tanks than it possibly knows what to do with. And frankly, there aren't a hell of a lot of big tank battles on the horizon. So the army actually wants to stop producing Abrams tanks. The Congress won't let the army stop producing Abrams tanks because there's a tank plant in Lima, Ohio, that employs a bunch of people who would lose their jobs if the tank plant closed down. So the army is gonna keep getting more new tanks. I mean, that is a, a teeny tiny example of the, way th of, of the corruption uh, that, you know, gets ignored. It gets ignored, and it's really a shame that we can't find a better economic model for development. I mean, it seems like a very bad development model when you're just uh, focusing on creation of weapons, then exportation of weapons, all weapons that are used for war. You point out that not all historians bow to the iron logic to which the blob subscribes, however. Recent events are prompting a few dissenters to entertain second thoughts, and I'm glad that you brought up this gentleman because uh, this is someone who I've been thinking about having on our show. Among them is Professor Martin Conway of Oxford University. Compared to Dennis Ross or the sundry blobbers now in Joe Biden's employ, Conway is not a prisoner of a curated past. He's open to the possibility that the cell by date attached to that taken for granted past may well have expired a taken for granted curated past whose sell by date has expired is this a past that never existed and is now finally losing believers uh, sadly uh, no it's not losing believers I, I, I had never heard of Conway before I read that piece and then you know I wrote my piece sort of referencing uh, him uh, so, so he argue, he argues that this, you know, earlier we were talking about the sort of the perpetual overhang of the World War II uh, era and the way it influences our, our perspective, our thinking, our view of, of, of history. And, and Conway says, man, that's not relevant anymore. We need to, we need to get over it. We need to move on. Uh, and I was very much taken by his argument. But let's face it. I mean, he is a voice crying in the wilderness. Uh, you know what the response to Professor Conway is? It's remember what Winston Churchill said. <laughs> you know, it's 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 remember Neville Chamberlain, uh, the powerful uh, imagery uh, that that in a sense takes the place of any willingness to think critically about the past. 
because we're comfortable with that imagery. We're, we're comfortable with thinking about Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt sitting on a warship, you know, singing onward Christian soldiers <laughs> as, as, they, as they try to forge some kind of a relationship. As, I mean, and what Churchill's trying to do is maneuver the United States into the war by hook or by crook. Uh, you know, we, Professor Conway would like to just jettison all that. I would too, but man, it's, uh, it's not going to happen easily. How much is challenging that curated past that Conway describes? How much is challenge, challenging that curated past? It, how much is that the challenge to white supremacy and white privilege? Is the biggest challenge to white supremacy no longer be- believing in the biggest of the big lies? Well, I think that, you know, I, that, that is a very good question. And I do think that there are connections. I don't think those connections have been sort of uh, explored, but you're on to some. So if World War II was not a war of liberation, if World War II was a war to perpetuate white supremacy, well, that certainly gives us a different outlook on things. And if, if the war was a war to destroy Nazi Germany, and it was necessary to do that. It was also a war to perpetuate white supremacy, not, not simply white supremacy in the British Empire, but white supremacy in the United States of America. And if, to the extent that we can integrate into our understanding of World War II these other elements, then I think that it becomes possible to begin to, to break apart the the hegemonic interpretation of World War II, come to a different understanding of what it was all about, and therefore, by extension, uh, make it possible for us to rethink America's role in the world and to come to something that's more uh, relevant, connected to the world as it actually is, which is not the world that existed in 1945 or 1947 or 1989. Uh, when the Berlin Wall went down. You're right, as a step toward grasping what's now underway, Conway urges his fellow historians to bury their narratives of the 20th century on a par with asking Ohio State or the University of Alabama to give up football. Uh, So the right would argue this is going to be reconstructivist history, a new reading or rereading of history that is not the history we've been told. Don't the people, I'm just, uh, just being devil's advocate, do the people during that time, know what's happening more than any future historian who describes how the contemporary understanding of the world was, in fact, wrong. Does a rereading of history, is it necessarily inaccurate because it's not a reading of history from contemporary voices? Well, you're right. Uh, you know, some of the things I have suggested to you would be denounced as revisionism, and revisionism uh, in some quarters is, is really... Uh, uh, is, a, is a, a term of blasphemy, as if history is, as if our understanding of the past is fixed permanently in place. Reality is that history is constantly being revised, rethought, reexamined, examined from a different perspective. Doesn't mean that the revisionists come up with answers that are true, whereas the narrative that they are criticizing was necessarily false, but it 
it is necessary to have this process go on. And uh, it's necessary because at least possibly we'll come to a, an understanding of the past is more relevant. Yeah. It is more useful. Uh, you know, my, my gripe about the traditional narrative of World War II is not that it's, I find it very uplifting. I mean, I'm as much a sucker as anybody else for listening to recordings of, of Churchill giving speeches. Uh, but I don't think that that perspective is helpful to us, given where we are, given where the world is, given what is happening, given, given what's happened to us over the past, you know, 15, 20 years, whether we're talking about what, what's happened to us because of our folly in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, or what's happening to us because of the enormous changes that we are experiencing within our own country. Uh, I think that's what Con Conway is sort of getting at. You know, we need, to, we need to free ourselves from an interpretation of the past that simply is not useful anymore uh, to come up with a past, uh, a revised past that, that, can, that can help us uh, navigate our way uh, forward. Just one last question for you, and we could be speaking here for another half hour, 45 minutes on this, because I have at least another 30 questions written down for you. Uh, but Andrew, just one last question for you. We have been speaking with author and historian Andrew Basevich, who wrote the article at Tom Dispatch on shredding an obsolete past. Biden defers to the blob. Andrew's professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston University. He first appeared here on This Is Hell back in February of 2006. You can see find a couple of his, our interviews with him from July 2016 at our website right now, this is hell.com when you click uh, or when you search on Basevich. And he has a new book coming out in June titled After the Apocalypse America's Role in a World Transformed. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Basevich. One last question for you. And as always, Andrew, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Actually, I hope that I just learned something from this because it's something I just don't, I can't wrap my mind around. You point out, uh, Conway's point to begin mapping the uncharted landscape that lies ahead in this in his new history of the present references the bond between citizens and the state. The old contract, individual duties performed in exchange for collective benefits, no longer applies. Instead, the new politics of the bazaar shortchange the many while benefiting the few, like the mega wealthy Americans who, during the coronavirus pandemic, have so far raked in an estimated extra one point three trillion dollars. So did the social contract, if, if the social contract is broken, how sustainable is democracy without a social contract? Well, I fear it may not be sustainable. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think as a people, as a nation, we have not yet come to terms with the real meaning of the Trump presidency. Uh, and the meaning is it goes deeper than Trump himself, deeper than Trump's lies, Trump's incompetence. Uh, Trump came to be because the fabric of American democracy was already uh, badly damaged. And simply moving Trump off stage and giving us a, an old war horse like Joe Biden doesn't, doesn't repair things. So there's a lot more thinking about the Trump era that needs to be done.
Yeah, so let me follow up on that, if you don't mind, Andrew, because you write that egged on by politicians like Trump or British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the less privileged, have figured out that the social contract has been broken. Biden's efforts to pass yet another COVID-19 related relief bill responded to, but could not conceal the real story, the emergence of an anti-establishment populism. So did the breaking of that social contract lead to that anti-establishment populism? Because anti-establishment populism is often opposed to what they call redistribution and entitlements, which includes taxes and government services that are at the heart of the social contract. So did breaking the social contract lead to anti-establishment populism, which is often opposed to the social contract? I mean, I guess the simple answer is yes. <laughs> that's so, but the that's, caveat, or, the, the, but what I would want to add is that uh, it's been a long time coming. Again, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't say that we shouldn't, we shouldn't lay all this on Trump. Trump, in a sense, was a beneficiary of contradictions uh, that had had that preceded him by a couple of decades. He was a shrewd enough guy to understand the buttons to push uh, to exploit the potential of the of the new populism. So it's not about him. It's about the conditions that produced him. Andrew, I cannot thank you enough for being back on the show. It's been five years, and that's far, far too long. I really appreciate you uh, showing your support for our show over the last 15 uh, 15 years. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope that everything is well with you and yours. Uh, Have you been vaccinated? I got my second shot yesterday. Yeah. That's why we allowed this phone call to happen, because we knew it would be safe. (laughs) All right. Take care, Andrew. Thank you. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners answering? Uh, This week's question from hell, (laughs) sorry, uh, I had to close every window because we were having a little bit of uh, connectivity problems there. Oh, great. Uh, So, (laughs) opening all my windows now. Okay. Uh, So, what are you not paranoid enough about? What are you not paranoid enough about? Aaron D. says, surveillance capitalism. (laughs) Gorilla G. says, maybe they are not always watching. Having decided, I'm boring. (laughs) Garrett S. says, whether a higher being exists or not. Ashwin R. says, hummus made by Bill Gates. (laughs) Uh, Bradley R. says, white people. Terry C. says, QAnon and spiked online getting married. Darren S. says, the stranglehold stranglehold on capital by entrenched institutions which co-opt and converts progressive cultural developments into mediocre pop commodities to perpetuate a cycle of consumption that will ultimately ruin the ability of this planet to support life. Hmm, that's a happy thought. Joshua L. says, becoming more paranoid about everything I think of, so I'll just try again next week. (laughs) Mike M. says, bipartisanship. Nora P. (laughs) says, oh, oh, yes, this thought question has crossed my mind before. Very convenient, Norapi. And then finally, Adam A. says, angry old drunk white dudes in head-to-toe Cubs regalia pretending to be concerned citizens patrolling the sidewalks against us rule-breaking anarchist bikers momentarily riding on the sidewalk looking for a place to lock up our bikes. Yes, looking at you, angry old drunk white dude in head-to-toe Cubs regalia pretending to be a concerned citizen patrolling the sidewalks against us rule-breaking anarchist bikers momentarily riding on the sidewalk looking for a place to lock up our bikes. F you, dude. <laughs> Who said that? That was uh, Adam A. All right. Good answer, Adam. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hal at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. This week's winner gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from Hal on tomorrow's show. 
Sao Paulo, Brazil correspondent to This Is Hell, Brian Muir, has new writing at Brazil Wire. A story called Sao Paulo Court Rules Lula Family Never Owned Triplex on the scandal over an apartment purchase that led former president, Brazilian President Lula da Silva to be imprisoned. It turns out Lula did not own the apartment when the alleged crime happened. As Brian writes, on March 24th, 2021, a Sao Paulo court ordered the Organization of American States, or no, I'm sorry, the OAS Construction Company to return 10 years of monthly installments paid on apartment 141 in the Solaris building in Guaruja, the neighborhood in Sao Paulo, to the family of Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva. The ruling was based on the fact that the former Brazilian president's wife, Maria Leticia canceled the purchase and formally asked for her money back in 2015. This in turn took place before the Operation Car Wash, Operation Lava Jato Task Force accused Lula of receiving an upgrade to a triplex in the same building plus reforms, plus repairs, uh, renovations, including installation of an elevator in exchange for political favors. As has been noted repeatedly, the Lava Jato prosecutors were never able to prove that Lula or anyone in his family ever owned or lived in the triplex, or that the reforms repairs had ever taken place. Photos and videos shot by members of a housing movement who occupied the apartment shortly after Lula's arrest prove that an elevator repeatedly cited by prosecutors was never installed. The new court ruling shows that all legal ties between Lula, his family, and the Solaris building in Sao Paulo terminated before the investigation, which imprisoned Lula for 580 days and removed him from the 2018 presidential race before it even began. In other words, the entire prosecution and imprisonment of Lula was completely illegal. And nothing quite says justice like committing illegal acts to stifle democracy, especially with the help of the United States. Wait, exactly how does U.S. foreign policy promote or defend democracy. There's nothing that quite says democratic values like corrupting another country's justice system for your own business interests. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? Uh, we have writer 16 Van Utrecht. That's right. First name 16. This is really awesome. I knew somebody named 7. Uh, this... <laughs> Well, she's doing a little, 16's doing a little bit better then. Uh, I like 16 more than 7. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, and so she'll be on to talk about her Roar Magazine piece, From Red Scarfs to Yellow Vests, The Communalist Tradition. And Thursday show? Uh, ben Ehrenreich will be on to talk about his New Republic piece, We Are Rapidly Hurtling Toward Global Suicide. And people really liked our interview that we did with Ben on his latest book. You can find that by searching on Ehrenreich at thisishell.com. Just don't, you know, click on any of his mom's stuff. you got to make sure it's a Ben Ehrenreich thing. Thanks to everyone who subscribed to This Is Hell on Patreon this past weekend, including Francisco, Athena, and Owen, thanks for becoming our newest subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Andrew Basevich. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>